0: Thanks for joining us for the Heritage Bible Church podcast from Lincoln, Nebraska. We desire to be a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify Christ and love people well. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Well, grab your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11 as the kids are going, and uh, appreciate Nick Reading for us, we have a really just an incredible passage this morning. i gotta, I got to be honest with you all and tell you, uh, just in my own uh, study and reading over the last couple of weeks, this, this chapter has had me all over the map in my emotions, right? I mean, there is just awe and amazement. There is um, moments of laughter as you read the responses of some of the, the people, and uh, even some, some tears as I read... Uh, And and even listening on on audio Bible this week and and hearing read the the part that uh, the the profession of Martha that Nick just read for us, it's just such a beautiful statement of her faith. And it's a culmination of all that we've been trying to get to in John, right? John has has tried desperately to lay out for us who Christ is with the goal of leading people to understand uh, the ministry, the life, the person of Christ, And, and here Martha makes this beautiful profession of faith, and and so we're going to dig in today. As we go to John chapter 11, understand that chapter 10 is kind of the end of the the public ministry portion of John's gospel, and now chapters 11 and 12 are going to transition us kind of to the rest of the book, and ultimately to the events that surround the cross of Christ. And in this chapter, Jesus' friend Lazarus is the, the conduit, to show the hope of future resurrection. And this is a hope of future resurrection that is for all who believe. And this is an account that's not found in any of the Synoptic Gospels. It's unique to the Gospel of John. And we see where Jesus tells Martha, the sister of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And shortly after making that statement, Christ raises Lazarus from the tomb, and many people come to believe in him and who he is. And you see that the Pharisees then say that, that they can't allow Christ to go on like this, to go on doing these things, or everyone will believe in him. This John chapter 11, this miracle, this seventh miracle that John records, the resurrection of Lazarus is a, is a turning point that leads us to the death of Christ and to his greatest glory, and we'll see that as we go. Follow along with me. We'll read the first, John chapter 11 and the first 27 verses. <clears throat> now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, even he who comes into the world. Well, again, a marvelous passage here that has so much richness for us about who Christ is and what he did. And and I really want to let it speak for itself. and It it truly needs very little commentary. And that's good because we're going all the way to verse 46 this morning. And uh, I I made that, don't don't groan in disbelief. (laughs) Some of you are like, I bet we're not. <laughs> I made that choice partly because next week we're going to be on the topic of thankfulness as we come to the holiday season, and I just didn't want to leave Lazarus in the grave over Thanksgiving. It just didn't seem like a, just didn't seem like a kind thing to do, you know? I, I didn't want to say like, and Lazarus died. Tune in in a couple of weeks to see what happens. We want to see this story in its fullness, even though we know the story, right? Chapter 11 can really be broken up into four scenes, if you like. And if you're taking notes, you want to put these in your your margins. First, the verses 1 to 6 is the news of Lazarus' death coming to Christ and the disciples. Second, in verses 7 to 16, the disciples try to talk Jesus out of going up to Jerusalem. Then thirdly, in verses 17 to 32, the Lord goes to Bethany and he talks to Martha and Mary. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 33 on, has to do with describing the amazing sign of the resurrection of Lazarus and the results of it. So let's grab some highlights from verses 1 to 27, and then we'll go and look at verses 28 to 46. (coughs) Excuse me. This chapter records one of the most touching accounts in the life of Christ because we see in verses 1 to 6 these family members, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, are are mentioned. and, And during Christ's ministry, Lazarus and his his two sisters have become special friends of Christ. This is the first mention of his relationship with him in John's gospel, but we know from the other gospels, we know from Luke, the story of of him being at their home and Mary showing her devotion by sitting at Jesus' feet to hear his words. These are special people, special friends to Christ, and Bethany seems to be a, a special place where he can go and be welcomed and enjoy warm fellowship and be comforted. Interesting that Lazarus' name in Hebrew is Eliezer, which means the one whom God has helped. Seems fitting for a man lying dead for four days and being brought back to life. That's a pretty big help, right? That's a big, that's a big help. So his name fits well. And, and, and isn't it neat to see, just right off the bat in 11, chapter 11, that the sisters knew of the Lord's love for Lazarus. And so when they sent word to him of their brother's sickness, that's, that's how they phrased it. Jesus' love for Lazarus and for his sisters is highlighted in, chapter, in verse 3, verse 5, verse 36, which of course makes it maybe uh, even more odd that on hearing of Lazarus' sickness, what does Jesus do? Not what we would have done. This seems a little odd to anyone who's ever rushed to someone's bedside, ever rushed to the hospital, right? Jesus intentionally stays two days longer in the place where he is. And this response might have seemed to to be a lack of compassion to some. I think Jesus delayed for a few reasons. I don't necessarily think, as some would kind of paint the picture, that Jesus delayed basically just to wait for Lazarus to die so then he could go and, and do the miracle. I think Jesus knew that Lazarus was already dead. And that seems clear from verses 17 and 39, and you kind of put it all together and you get this timeline we got to get 4 days right he's got to be in the in the tomb 4 days and so we assume we got a day for a messenger to travel to take the news 2 days where Christ tarries and then a day for them to travel as well and so that would put Christ or Lazarus death early on in the story right certainly Jesus did not go immediately because he was waiting for the right moment in the father's plan Christ lives his life in entire and complete submission to the will of the Father, to the plan that has been predetermined and laid out for him. And certainly that plan included the fact that he's going to go do something far greater than healing Lazarus and preventing his death. Christ could have done that, right? He's got something so much greater in mind. And part of the plan may have been to make sure that all the people who would witness this would know that it was a genuine undeniable miracle that Lazarus hadn't just been swooning or passed out and been resuscitated, but this was a genuine resurrection. In fact, there was a, a Jewish tradition with no doctrine behind it, but a Jewish tradition that four days was significant. One rabbi wrote, for three days after death, the soul hovers over the body intending to re-enter it, but as soon as it sees its appearance change, it departs. Basically, it's just kind of this myth or this idea that when the body began to decompose and become unrecognizable, then you were officially good and dead, right, at that point. So by the time there's a day for the news to reach Christ and then the two-day delay and another day of journey, let's just say that when Christ arrives, Lazarus has been more than mostly dead all day, okay? This is not a, uh, for you Princess Bride fans, this is not a Miracle Max-type resurrection, resuscitation this is the the real thing and notice that Jesus tells his disciples in verse four that Lazarus sickness would not end in death well that's interesting because Lazarus is dead right but he's saying it's not going to end in permanent death instead the end result of Lazarus temporary demise is that Jesus will be glorified look at John chapter 9 verse 3 just flip back a, a few pages there You remember this story of this man who I love so much for his gift of sarcasm and how they were asking about his blindness, and, and Jesus said it was neither that this man nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And That's exactly what we have here. One commentator notes the irony of the story of Lazarus is that Jesus' power and obedience to the Father are displayed in reversing Lazarus' death But that event leads to the death of Christ. But that event leads to the greatest glory of Christ of all of his life and ministry, his death and resurrection for us. That's the greatest glory in Christ's work. Now, look at verses 7 to 10. You see the disciples' response. Jesus basically said, look, guys, we're going to Judea so that I can be glorified. And a good disciple's response would be like, let's go. That's what we're all about. We're all about you being glorified. But instead their response was, uh, how about we don't go there? How about we don't do that? His disciples knew that going to Judea was dangerous. The reason they had left Judea a few weeks before was the the hostility of the Jewish leaders. You can see that in chapter 10, verses 39 and 40. Then you look up again at John 10, 31. They tried to stone him. So the disciples are referencing this, and the disciples are trying to prevent him from going. Jesus' message to them in verses 9 and 10 is... Another example of Christ using earthly illustrations to teach a much deeper spiritual truth. In one sense, Christ is speaking to them in verses 9 and 10 about walking in physical light or physical darkness. But at the very same time, he's teaching them a lesson, an important lesson, that the safest place is in the center of God's will. As long as Christ followed God's plan no harm would come to him until the appointed time. You remember this? Other places in the gospel, John chapter 2, verse 4, John chapter 7, verse 30, where Christ says his hour has not yet come. Well, that applies here as well, and to the divine protection that God has for him. And there's a, a principle here for the disciples. Homer Kent points out a principle for us as well. He says, there is a principle here that believers would do well to remember. As long as one is fulfilling God's specific plan, and until that plan is accomplished, there is nothing that God's servant need fear. He can rely upon God's protection, for angels are deployed to give strength and preservation. Just again, the reminder that when we walk in faith, when we walk in God's will, when we walk in obedience, we are in the safest place we can possibly be in. We are in the place of God's blessing. Notice again, verse 15, Jesus is so clear repeatedly about the point of all of this, why this is happening, what the the plan is. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I just, they weren't quite getting it. He had to be, you know, clear with them. Verse 15, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus intended for this experience, even with all of its grief, even with the loss and the sorrow, he intended it to bring the disciples encouragement to strengthen their faith because he knew their faith needed strengthening, certainly for what was about to come. And now we've got we've to keep moving, but we have to at least acknowledge Thomas's words in verse 16, right? Because this is one of the places where I was laughing a little bit as I'm preparing. Therefore, Thomas, who's called Didymus, which by the way means twin, which is kind of interesting to know. Apparently, Thomas was a twin, even though we don't see anything in Scripture about his twin or what his name was or who he was. So Thomas says to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Now, you might take this at first glance as a reference to Lazarus. He's the dead one, right? Lazarus has died. Let us go and die with him, because apparently that's what's going to happen, because this is you know, where Jesus is taking us back to. And that would be a pretty negative attitude, wouldn't it, like just kind of resigning himself to... To dying, but I think Thomas is really referring to dying with Jesus here, and maybe that's obvious to you or how you first read it. And from the disciples' limited perspective, it's a virtual certainty that if they go back to this place, they're going to be putting their life on the line. And so I really read this statement by Thomas as a courageous declaration of sorts, that Thomas is basically saying, all right, guys, if Jesus is going to die, so are we, so mount up. Like, here we go, we're going to die with Jesus. So as we jump forward in the scene a bit, Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. They they come to Bethany, the disciples are there with him. And and, and this family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they must have been well-known, they must have been well-loved by others as well because Lazarus' death draws a crowd of mourners at the home. Martha, we know, is the more spirited sister, the activist, she goes out to meet Jesus and she says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's an interesting statement. Kind of depends on the tone you read it with, right? I really don't think that this is a commentary on Jesus' tardiness. I don't think she's correcting or shaming Jesus, which just as a general rule in my theology, I don't think is a good thing to do Anyway. I think she's actually demonstrating an amazing and deep faith in Jesus' ability to heal. She's simply making a declaration that she knew that that Christ could have healed her brother, that he has the power to do that. And why would she not believe that? Jesus' healing has been demonstrated time and time again. She probably witnessed this. She heard Christ's teaching in her own home. She knew that Jesus could have healed her brother, and she says so, and she's right. He could have. And she goes on and says in verse 22, even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She knows that Jesus is good. I don't think, personally, that she's looking for resurrection here. I think kind of because we know the end of the story, maybe we like move that a little bit farther forward, we kind of impose that on her, that she was thinking or looking for resurrection, and she may have been. But I think when you look at verse 24 and verse 39 And the way that Martha objects to opening the tomb, I don't think resurrection is on her mind. I, I think she's simply professing her faith that despite the terrible tragedy of her brother's death, Jesus is still able to give the family hope. That Jesus' presence is still a good thing. That because of his special intercessory power and relationship with the Father, she knows that that Jesus is there and the hand of God is on him and and maybe something good will come out of that. But Jesus tells her, verses 23 and 24, that her brother will rise. And this promise sets the stage for Jesus' conversation with Martha. She, she, She had, I don't believe, any immediate thought of resuscitation, but she did believe in the final resurrection of the last day. So Jesus' immediate reassurance of Lazarus' future resurrection calls forth her confession. I I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And so Martha's identifying with kind of the the hope of Judaism, that there is a resurrection. You know that there was this kind of conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you know that the easy way to remember that, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't, and that's why they were sad, you see, So that's the easy way, just file that away in your mind if you didn't already know that or know a little song about it. So Martha's identifying with the teaching of the Word of God, with the teaching of the the Pharisees, that believes that God will not leave his own to, to just go into oblivion, but there will be a resurrection in the Messianic kingdom, and she believes in that. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection. And the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, here we are. The fifth of Jesus' I am, seven I am declarations. In John chapter 6, we saw Jesus say, I am the bread of life. And then he does a miracle creating a meal to prove his statement. John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. And then he heals a blind man, just to put an exclamation point on the fact that he's the light of the world. And here he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he proves it by putting his resurrection power on display in front of Mary and Martha and the disciples and all of the townspeople who have come to mourn and everyone who will read about it in the word of God for all of eternity. Isn't it striking that Jesus did not claim to be able to raise the dead. In other words, I mean, just the way that it's it's worded, Jesus didn't say, I can resurrect and I can give life. It's not what he says. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Christ is saying that the resurrection and the life are present right now, standing in front of you. That because Jesus is the Lord of life, which we learned in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is the Lord of life, and the resurrection and the life are standing in front of these people declaring to them who he is, and he is claiming to be the source of new life. And the miracle that we see in the text just backs up the claim. Look back at John chapter 5, verse 21. There's kind of a pattern here in Christ's teaching as he's challenged by the the Jewish leaders, basically they say, they basically tell Christ at several junctures that you are claiming to be able to do things that only God can do. And Jesus doesn't say, no, I, I'm not, that's not what I'm doing. I would never say such a thing. He says in 521, just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. And this would be an absurd claim for a mere man to make. It's about as strong a claim to deity as you could make. And it's exactly the claim that Christ is making in chapter 11, and then he's going to demonstrate it. In John chapter 11, we have this bodily resurrection of Lazarus, but Christ Christ is speaking of so much more than this physical bodily resurrection. Again, don't be tied to earthly thoughts of the Messiah. Christ is so often trying to turn our thoughts to spiritual things, and here he's telling us that he can bring the spiritually dead to new life, to eternal life. What a miracle. Which is the greater miracle? When you read Jesus' words in John eleven twenty-five 25 to 26 about life and death, it, it, it might seem a little bit nonsensical, just the the way that it flows, right? But only if you don't understand what Christ offers. Only if you don't understand what life in Christ is all about. I mean, you read it, it basically says that the idea is that uh, if you die, you live. And if you live and you believe, you never die. Well, that's a little confusing. But not if we think spiritual thoughts. And that's the thing, is to think Christ's thoughts after him, to, to follow him in his word. In fact, turn over to Matthew chapter 16. This this declaration, this statement of Christ reminds me of, of Matthew 16, 24 to 26. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Listen to verse 25. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... We'll find it. For what will it profit a man if he gazes the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? See, when you're a believer, losing is gaining, right? When you're a believer, death doesn't hold the same confusion, the same power of fear over you as it used to. The believer's death brings forth new life. So much so, Christ is saying new life and death for the believer, so much so that it's as if the believer never really dies. The Christian really just ushers from a temporary state of life in Christ into an eternal one. You just live your life here, heart, soul, mind, and strength, worshiping God, and then one day you just transfer to glory and you worship God with heart, soul, mind, and strength for all of eternity without fail. What a transfer. What a life. Eternal life, this is the offer of Christ. This is a message that we have to the world around us. John 3.16, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 5.24, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. John 10.28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When a Christian dies, he is ushered immediately into the presence of the Lord, into the glory of, of God in heaven. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go straight to glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We are of good courage, verse 8 says, I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home from the Lord. And Philippians 1, Paul says, I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to part and be with Christ, for that is much better. The interesting aspect of this story, the idea that the believer is instantly upon death, present in heaven, in the glory of the Lord, worshiping God, because we have to assume, I think, that when Lazarus died, he probably went to heaven. So this is a pretty exciting miracle for everyone, with one possible exception. <laughs> <clears throat> there are some Christian comedians who have had a lot of fun with this, describing, uh, you know, Lazarus in heaven, just loving it, living it up. And an angel comes and knocks on his door. Uh, Yeah, um, we don't usually do this, right? <laughs> but we got this plan, right? So Lazarus comes, you know, back to, to the earth and, and really understand that Lazarus' resurrection is not a, a, a full resurrection in the sense of our resurrection or the resurrection of Christ. Lazarus is a, is a restoration, right? He's, he's dead and he's brought back to life, but guess what? He's going to have to die again, right? So there's a little bit of a downer there. When Christ is resurrected, he comes with a full resurrection glory and body, and he is the first fruits of our resurrection. Christ is resurrected, is restored to die again. Notice that as we're getting closer to the miracle here, we see in verse 27, Martha's great confession of faith in Christ. She agreed with Jesus' words about eternal life for those who believe in him. She confessed three things about Jesus. Let's see if you can agree with these three things this morning. First is that Jesus is the Christ, that is Messiah. Second is that he is the son of God. And we've talked about this title, messianic title, son of God. And third is that he is the one who has come into the world, literally the coming one. Basically, she's saying, you are the Messiah, you are the Messiah, you are the Messiah. She's confessing that he is the savior that the world has been waiting for, the one that God has promised, the one that everyone has been longing for. And I'm just thinking, what what joy it must have given the Apostle John. Can you imagine him sitting at his table, sitting at his desk, writing and recording the, the words of the testimony, the profession of Martha? And I say that because do you remember John's stated purpose in writing this gospel? Turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. John explains why he wrote the gospel. It was to to present Jesus as the Son of God, as the Savior of the world, so that people would believe in him and be saved. And this is exactly what's happened with Martha. I wonder if there was a moment in which maybe you know, Jesus said, could you go and explain this to some of the disciples? Because they're still coming along, right? Now look at what John says and how he explains why he wrote this gospel. Verse 30, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed and the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John desperately wants people to consider his sampling of the incredible deeds of Jesus and to believe in Jesus Christ. And Martha, as limited as her understanding of what Christ is about to do with Lazarus is she gets the spiritual truth that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And now we're getting again closer to this miracle here. But first, Christ interacts with Mary. She's in mourning, and and others are there in in mourning as well. Verse 28, pick it up, and we'll read to verse 38. When she had said this, they went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she had heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came uh, where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Well, Mary's greeting to Jesus was the same as her sister's. She felt the tragedy could have been averted, would have been averted if he had been present. But her faith is sincere, but limited. Again, not understanding what's about to happen, what Christ is really going to do, an even greater miracle. And verses 33 to 34 tell us that Jesus was deeply moved. And and I wonder if maybe this might be a, a little different than the way you've understood it in the past. Because the word here for deeply moved is almost always in other places translated as an anger or a sternness. And if that's the case here, we would have to ask, why was Jesus angry in this narrative at this point? Some have argued that Jesus was angry because of the people's mourning, that Mary and the crowd and the mourners were coming and wailing, and and maybe Christ's anger was aimed at a, a kind of mourning that was without hope. And that could be. I think it goes deeper than that. Maybe as one commentator put it, Jesus was angry at the the tyranny of Satan that had brought sorrow and death to people, death as the, the result, the consequence of sin in the world, death that Christ had come to put an end to, to ultimately defeat, and here he's seeing it face to face, his friends that he loves and his disciples and even unbelievers who are mourning again without hope, without understanding. Moorfield and Calvin and others have written on this and and concluded essentially that we have a picture here of Christ. They say, advancing against death as a champion who prepares for conflict, gazing into the skeletal face of the world, he saw the reign of death everywhere, and he raged in his spirit at the effects of Adam's sin, which touch all of humanity and find illustration in the death of his friend Lazarus. We understand this, right? We understand death as an enemy. We understand death as a a result of sin and the fall, that Christ didn't create this to be, that God didn't create to to be this way. Now, I don't pretend to know everything that was in the, the mind of Christ at this moment, but one thing I do know is that I see the humanity of Christ on display. I see love, I see passion, emotion in Christ. And It's quite a contrast. The Greek gods that were celebrated at the time were said to be apathetic, basically just emotionless, disengaged, uncaring. And that's not what we've seen of Christ at all in the Gospel of John. Even in verse 35, we see that famous verse that Jesus wept. And again, I don't pretend to know everything that was in his mind, and certainly even those present didn't seem to know. You read verses 36 and 37, and I think they're kind of confused, too, exactly what's going on with Christ. But isn't it just possible that Jesus' deep love for Lazarus, his love for the people who are gathered, and ultimately his love for the entire world, all come together and and give him this rush of emotion, of, yes, anger and and grief mingled together. We remember that scripture says that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And again, the humanity of Jesus is on display here. That essential, important doctrine that, that as we're you know defending the deity of Christ with one hand, we, we can't loosen our grip on the humanity of Christ even a bit. Jesus is born of a woman. He's in appearance as a man. He grew in stature and wisdom. He had a human name and a hometown and he got hungry and tired and thirsty and he wept. We have a high priest who understands. We have a sympathetic high priest who has experienced life as we experience it. Christ is a divine person, but he has a human nature. He is fully God and fully man. let's pick up then in verse 39 because we have to see as uh, Paul Hart would say the rest of the story verses 39 to 46 Jesus said remove the stone Martha the sister of the deceased said to him Lord by this time there will be a stench for he has been dead four days Jesus said to her did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God so they removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So here it is, the climax story, Jesus at the tomb. Maybe just like the one you picture in your mind, a a cave hewn into the limestone with a big stone placed over the entrance, and Jesus commanded that the stone door be moved. But Mary objects, because after four days, putrefaction had set in. And as the King James says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Good way to phrase it, very poetic. Then you have in verse 40, Jesus' epic reminder to Martha. I think maybe I need this reminder every day. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God. You want to see great things from God? right? Christ might, may, may not be present on earth doing uh, you know, bodily resurrections, but if you want to see the power of Christ alive in you, have faith. Walk every day in belief. Believe the promises that God has made to you. Believe the power of Christ that is in you. He makes a specific promise to Martha, and, and these sisters trusted Jesus, so they gave permission to open the tomb. And with the, tomb take, with the stone taken away, what does Jesus do? He just prays a prayer of thanksgiving. He doesn't even, he doesn't even ask the Father. He just thanks him. There's a, there's a presumption here in Christ's prayers, which ought not be present in our prayers, but is entirely appropriate for the Son of God, for the second member of the Trinity. This complete agreement, this complete understanding. We, we pray... Knowing that God can accomplish anything, we pray in full faith, but not knowing what God's plan is, right? So we don't presume to to tell God what he's going to do or presume that God's going to answer our prayers exactly the way we want him to. Well, sometimes we do, right? But we ought not do that, but Christ can. He simply thanked his Father for granting his request because he knew that he was doing the Father's will. And verse 42 makes the purpose clear again. The granting of his request by the Father would give clear evidence to the people that he had been sent by the Father and would cause people to believe. And so calling with a loud voice so that the crowds would know what was happening, Jesus brought Lazarus alive from the tomb. And can you imagine the reaction? What what was it? Was it just wonderment? Was it just awe? Was it fear as this guy comes out like a zombie. I mean, he's wrapped up. He's like a mummy. He's wrapped up in his stuff still. And this had to be like this mixture of terrifying and exciting, like, it's Lazarus. It's Lazarus. (laughs) I mean, it's incredible. And Jesus shouts only three words, Lazarus, come out. Augustine once remarked that it was a good thing that Jesus used the name Lazarus because otherwise, all the dead people of all of history would have come out of their graves at the power of Christ. Now, I've shared with you from the beginning of John that I have this fear as we go through these things that we are so familiar with these stories. It's not as if I started John chapter 11 today and you thought, I wonder what's going to happen to Lazarus. Right? You know the story. We don't want to get so familiar familiar that we're not amazed. And not even just familiar with the scriptures, but I think sometimes just uh, pop culture. One commentator says it this way. I really appreciated this. We need to defamiliarize ourselves with what we see in movies or shows and visit reality in order to truly fathom the account of a man who has been dead for four days and then walks out of the grave. Of all the works of Jesus, there is none more powerful or compelling or memorable than the raising of Lazarus. And this climactic miracle of the raising of Lazarus from the dead is Jesus' public evidence, again, I say, of his great claim, I am the resurrection and the life. And friends, death is a great consequence and payment for sin. But physical death is just the beginning. Physical death is an object lesson of what sin does to us in the spiritual realm. When a person's physical death ends, if their sins have not been forgiven, they face an eternity of spiritual death. Physical death is the beginning of an eternal death that is a separation from God and from the people of God. It is the loss of of the everlasting life that is offered in Christ. Jesus tells us in chapter 10, verse 10, that he comes so that people may have full lives right now, right? We, we know this is part of the purpose of Christ. have abundant life, that we can have a, a life filled with purpose and hope and peace and joy and all the things that are offered in Christ. And that after that life, we can have a home waiting in heaven. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Rejecting Christ means that one will not see life. And this miracle, this seventh miracle of John's seven chosen miracles is this beautiful picture of God's Son bringing life to people. And I just beg you this morning, don't let it go to waste. See the spiritual life that is offered to you in the resurrection of Lazarus. God is calling you to life. God is calling out and he's saying, come forth. Come forth out of a life of futility and foolishness into the light, into the life that can only be found in Christ. And today is the day. To come to life by the power of Christ. And if you've had that experience and you have new life in Christ, you have been resurrected to. Don't you think that um, if you were among the people who were there at the resurrection of Lazarus, this would be your go-to story? Like, couldn't you imagine like, how much fun it must have been in the days following this? when the townsfolk were walking around and there was a group of guys, they were st- standing around talking about it and you could just kind of saddle up and say, I was there. They're like, no, you weren't. You weren't there. I was like, I was there. I saw the whole thing. Let me tell you how I went, right? I mean, this would be such an amazing story. You wouldn't be able to shut up about it for the rest of your life. Every party you go to, you know, your wife would be rolling her eyes. Here he goes again with the Lazarus story, right? Should it be any different for those of us who have been brought to newness of life in Christ, who have had our dead hearts of sin and stone removed and replaced. We've been regenerated. We've been brought to new life. We've had our sins forgiven. How could we be silent? We have to talk about it. It's our go-to story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and the sending of your Son and the giving of life through him thank you for a savior who loves and and feels and cares and engages with us thank you for the way that you've shown us through john's pen through the inspiration of the holy spirit over and over again who christ is and what he's here for and what his message for us is i just pray that we would respond Father, for any who don't know you, that your spirit would convict them mightily today to accept and, and reach out and grab hold of the life and the resurrection that Christ offers, the eternal life that he offers. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to be excited about what you've done for us, excited enough to live it out in a life of obedience, excited enough to, to testify to those around us and not be ashamed, but, but speak boldly of who you are and what you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.